When Japanese writer Murasaki Shikibu started writing the tale of Genji in the 11th century, it was clear from the start that she was on to something. Those who read early versions in her small aristocratic circle couldn't get enough. They loved it so much, they began reproducing it by hand so that they could have their own copies. The story became so popular and so powerful that Shikibu's original manuscript is believed to have been stolen from her and never recovered. Although the author's original copy is gone, the story remained intact in other sources and has been enormously influential in Japanese culture ever since it first appeared. I think it's fair to say there is no other single piece of literature in Japanese culture that is, uh, has been as influential as this text, insofar as it's influenced every type of cultural production for, you know, a good thousand years. <laughs> so whether that's stamps, whether that's money, whether that's, you know, anime and, and manga and pornographic, you know, woodblock prints um, or, you know, kind of dramas and, you know, motion pictures. You know, all of these things have, have um, for better and for worse, it really has had this incredibly uh, pervasive influence. My name is uh, Reginald Jackson. I'm an associate professor of pre-modern Japanese literature performance at the University of Michigan. The tale of Genji has remained relevant throughout the years because it can be read in so many different ways. The text itself has been so obscured and has, been, has had so many, or, or so layered by all these different kind of interpretations and so forth that, that one has the, the luxury or the pleasure of being able to make whatever they want of it, you know, and to use it for whatever ends possible. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Reginald Jackson to discuss Murasaki Shikibu's The Tale of Genji. What was the moment in which this text emerges and what is the uh, social environment that it is trying to, to describe? I mean, one thing to say, you know, I think overall is that, you know, this this text, as powerful as it is, is really fascinating to me in, in part because it's so ambiguous, which by that, I mean, not in like this kind of orientalist, you know, mysterious, you know, old Japanese thing way, but just, you know, but, but, you know, we don't know the author's real name, for instance, you know, we don't have any original kind of manuscript in, in her hand, it doesn't exist. Um, we don't even know if she wrote the entire thing. There are kind of theories that say that, that she only wrote kind of parts of this. So there's so much mystery surrounding um, this figure to say nothing of production of the text itself, except that we do know that this is, this is um, produced in the context kind of, of aristocratic society in Japan. Scholars estimate the text was written in the early 11th century. This time in Japan is known as the Heian period. During this era, the Fujiwara family held much of the power in the country. The family's strategy for staying in power was to marry their daughters to the existing emperor and then hope the daughter bears a son who would become the next emperor. Japanese emperors of this time typically had multiple wives. The idea is that um, technically the most powerful position that you can ha and inhabit in this context um, is to be the, the maternal grandfather of an emperor. If that daughter had a son, that son would be raised in the mother's household. He would be loyal to his mother's family, including his maternal grandfather. 
Because that boy is in line to become the next emperor, that grandfather would gain power and influence. You know, imagine, you know, whatever your dream college is, plus Powerball, um, you know, um, is, is kind of what you're going for here. So the competition in this context is incredibly fierce among different salons that are sponsored by these, these kind of wealthy patriarchal figures. To be a desirable wife for an emperor, a woman had to be smart. Beauty didn't matter as much. It was all about their intellect. So the smarter your daughters are, the more talented they are, the better reputation they have for being especially um, clever and, and charming and so forth. Um, that's your kind of ticket. And it's, indeed, most of the literature, I mean, at this time period is, is written by, uh, that's you know, prose fiction in particular, but the best literature at the time is written by women at this point, because these salons are these kind of um, breeding grounds slash training grounds for um, this type of, of literary exchange. Uh, and it's and you have these really wealthy patrons who are um, pouring everything into this. So, you know, paper, supplies, um, silk, everything to kind of play this game in which their daughter might be noticed and then kind of be able to, to bear that son. In the early 11th century, the Fujiwara clan was at the height of its power. And at the top was a man named Fujiwara no Mishinaga. He rose to power by eventually marrying off his first daughter, Shoshi, to the emperor. But before she could be married, she had to win the emperor's approval. And um, she enters this emperor's court in the time she's around, I think, 11 years old. And Michinaga figures out that um, he needs to have um, ladies-in-waiting, right? Um, so in this kind of pretty gender-segregated world, um, basically train and uh, service companions for his daughter. And he gets wind of this incredibly um, brilliant woman um, who we will call now Murasaki Shikibu. Um, and basically brings her in uh, to tutor uh, his daughter. This is a huge deal for Murasaki Shikibu. She comes from a relatively unknown family with a father who isn't especially powerful. And now, suddenly, she is thrust into the aristocratic inner circle to tutor the woman who might bear the next emperor. So I think it's fair to say that, that she was certainly a fish out of water, on the one hand, at the same time that there is a kind of sense of excitement Right, um, and a sense of wonder at what it means to be in this new in this new place, and to try to um, you know prove oneself and have to jockey for position, while also I mean uh, being very careful not to screw things up. Right, so so that anxiety that comes out, I think, about what it means to always follow the rules and always to be you know, keenly aware of one's self presentation. And she didn't, they weren't, they weren't second nature to her in the way that they would be for much higher ranking women. So, and I think, frankly, that's part of what makes her, her writing so much more interesting. While Murasaki Shikibu is tutoring this young woman, Shoshi, she is also writing the tale of Genji. Could you tell listeners what is the story that it tries to tell? Broadly speaking, what, what is the story about? It's called the tale of Genji because it centers around this character, male character, it's called um, Hikaru Genji, Shining Genji, uh, whose mother is of slightly lower status and enters um, the uh, is the favorite um, of an emperor, and you know gives birth to this amazing, uh, beautiful, perfect you know son, but is effectively bullied to death. Genji's mother is one of the emperor's wives. The emperor's other wives are jealous of Genji's mother because although she is of a lower status, she's the emperor's favorite wife. 
Genji is only three years old when she dies. And so Genji、um, doesn't have the backing,、um, and this emperor, who's apparently you know would seem to be all powerful, actually can't really openly support him, you know, over his his older、um, his other wife's、um, son. And so Genji gets this name is is a commoner,、uh, but has all of、um, all of the trappings of an aristocrat, and is trying to figure out what to do. And I, I mean, one way to understand the story. I mean, it's been called, I think, in really、uh, reductive ways, a romance. And there's lots of uh, courtship uh, becomes a you know a theme that kind of is、uh, circulated throughout. But I I really think of it as a story of this、um, deeply traumatized boy who is trying to figure out how to survive、um, and how to make the the, the best of the situation. Um, when he knows he deserves more than he can ever have,、um, and is constantly searching for some kind of stability. At one point in the story, Genji sleeps with his stepmother, one of the emperor's other wives, because she reminds him of his own mother. They end up having a child together, and eventually he ends up being the most powerful character、uh, because he secretly produces an heir who becomes an emperor. Uh, and so, in that sense, he's he's made it. He's attained that that really elusive、um, position that someone like Michinaga had, right? So that the you know life and you know art imitates life in that regard. Murasaki Shikibu had a unique position as an outsider in this close knit aristocratic world. This perspective allowed her to write about this world in a way that few were able to. The text itself, it's deeply ambivalent, and I think that part of the things that makes it so fascinating.、Um, And why I keep,、um, I can't get away from it is that you know, I, I, it seems to me to be a, a deep critique of all of this kind of very notion of an idealized、um, style of romance, of the the notion of、um, you know hierarchy as an end unto itself, you know, of this notion of the good life that everybody is is clawing their way and backstabbing their way towards. You know this woman who comes from outside of that system and now has to operate within it, and is also、um, benefits from it, but is also brutalized by it. I think has a lot of really critical. I mean, there's a really strong critical subtext. What it means when she depicts、um, scenes of sexual violence, or you know, all the ways in which、uh, courtship goes awry, and when this thing that you you want actually ends up being a, a hindrance to your flourishing. But you got to, you know, kind of keep keep on keeping on. Why did she write this text? I mean, I think one motivation certainly is that is that、um, she's expected, she's hired effectively to、um, to be this tutor companion to an empress, and part of what that entails is is having to to entertain, to entertain. Like the, the women of this of these salons were. Um, you know the the smartest, most interesting folks that that they could that that could be found, right?、Uh, and their their job was to make this particular person as as as、um, I mean to edify them at one at the one hand, but also to keep them company and to and to、um, help shape them, help groom them, some literally. So there's lots of women who are combing each other's hairs to make them beautiful and and all these other things, but also to Um, you know, as this collective team, to be able to、um, to build something that's going to be more durable than the next lady over, 
Shikibu did not write this book to make a classic work. That's clear from the title. The book's Japanese title is Genji Monogatari. Monogatari can mean anything from gossip to gibberish, but it's certainly not respectable literature. Respectable literature of this time was typically written by men and was about history and facts. By contrast, monogatari are uh, kind of trashy, are uh, about women's stuff, uh, are not to be taken seriously um, because they're fictional, um, are much more, um, you know, unlike diaries and these documents, they aren't dated, right? So there's a way in which all of these things are, are, are meant to impugn the value of this on the one hand, but men were obsessed with these too, <laughs> right? You know, so on the one hand, there's this kind of official discourse about, you know, um, about uh, the problems with this, what you call it a genre, but it's also um, something that is sustaining for people's lives, you know, pre-Netflix and pre, you know, all these other kind of, or PlayStation or whatever, like, what do you have really? You have, you know, literature and you have kickball and you have these kind of music and so forth, but this becomes really important. And so Murasaki Shikibu is, is writing this um, kind of almost on demand, you know, as, as a kind of, as a way to pass the time, it would seem. And, you know, she writes this and shares it with these women in her immediate circle and they love it. And what they do, if you, if you like something is that you copy your own, you know, in your own hand, you copy, you copy it down and that's how things circulate. And then you start to make these different kind of changes uh, in some cases and, and then pass it along and kind of have it circulate. Uh, and so one of the things that, that, that means is that then people start to say, well, what happens next? Or what about this character? Or, you know, how does that turn out? And so this is how the, the text starts to starts to grow and grow, is that, that she's getting feedback and these kind of conversations and people are reading these aloud for entertainment and so forth. And that then feeds into the creation process. And so it becomes this kind of feedback loop in some ways where she then goes back and starts to elaborate this or that and kind of shape the story in different ways in order to, you know, out of satisfy herself, but also to respond to these, these folks who... Um, who are interested in her story, and it kind of grows and grows from there. It eventually catches the attention of Mishinaga, Shoshi's father. He realizes the power of this text and wants to claim some of the recognition for this work because he is Murasaki Shikabu's patron. And she uh, returns to her room uh, one day and finds that, that her copy, her kind of very kind of carefully curated uh, manuscript is gone. It's been taken and it's akin to, you know, I think it's fair to say it's akin to a kind of a, a rape. And what's happened is that Michinaga, realizing how, how valuable this literature is in that time, um, has, has, has stolen it. And she's devastated, you know, and this is a woman who has lost her husband, lost children, mainly due to these kind of um, pandemics, you know. Um, uh, and, um, you know, death and destruction that's happening in the capital. And so, you know, it's akin, I think it's fair to say, you know, losing a child, or losing another child to lose that manuscript because everything that she has rides on, on the success of this thing. This is how, this is her livelihood, right? Because this is not there, you know, there's no royalties, there's no copyright, there's no, there's no 40, you know, 403B or 401k plan, you know, to retire on. You are only as good as the next line of calligraphy or poetry that you write. And so that's why it's so, it's so good, right? Because there was no, and it's not like, you know, paper was, you know, paper was incredibly valuable too. So it's not like you're doing drafts 
<laughs> right? This is, you know, the kind of, I think it's really hard for us in this moment of dictation software and emojis and all these other things, you know, and, and really terrible handwriting to really understand that you're pouring your heart and soul into being able to make this thing. So in order to, to make it kind of resonate for other people. What a knife edge. What, what high stakes. And for, and for Murasaki Shigibu to, to have that power over people's attention. I mean, both the pressure and the anxiety, but also just the, the thrill. I think that she certainly felt that kind of importance, but also, um, you know, it was deeply anxious about that. I think partially because she knew it could all evaporate in an instant. Right. So I think there was that thrill and there was that, um, you know, she was feeling herself at certain points. She knew that she was doing, you know, the dopest thing that, that existed at the time. And she knew that other women hated her guts for that. And there was, you know, she, and there's, you know, I think there's points you can point to where she's like, it's clear that she enjoys that, but there's also then that other part where she also knows that if she writes too well, that she's going to lose this thing that she's, you know, again, that she's spent all this time in and she's going to lose that investment. And she never really owns this thing, right? I mean, the fact that her, her first name, Murasaki, is actually comes from a character in the thing that she wrote. So we don't even know her real name because she was so famous in some ways that her own identity was obscured by this, this product that she made. This precarity is shown throughout the tale of Genji. Murasaki Shikibu really wants to show how uh, unideal, how deeply flawed the system is. Um, whether that's in terms of, at, at the same time that we have beautiful poetry, at the same time that you have these incredibly touching, tender moments um, where friends kind of meet and part and Genji mourns um, folks and is trying to, to do right by certain folks, even as he's really terrible to others and so forth. Um, and I think that there's the, the female protagonists that come throughout the tale are also, I think, uh, become... I think symbolize a lot of that that uh, deep anxiety around like what how the system how cruel the system is, you know. So there's I don't think that there's any character arguably that doesn't uh, doesn't become a testament to, um, you know, this really uh, completely depleting way of going through the world. And I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting about the reception of this and is that there's lots of commentators who traditionally have focused on, <laughs> on the pretty things and the flowers and the you know, evanescence of cherry blossoms and all these things that become these really hackneyed tropes about Japanese culture and, and aesthetic beauty. And, and of course, there's all kinds of eulogies to that and all kinds of ways in which the text supports that. Uh, at the same time, that there's also you know, women who kill other women and you know sexual violence and and all of these really just terrible violence that that pervades the entire um the entire narrative are there elements of like enduring japanese you know um either cultural expression or self-understandings that you you do see some story about how it continues to be alive among um, Japanese people and like in what ways? So I think in terms of the, the, the long legacy, I mean, lots of folks have, have written about this. Um, and then the work of uh, particularly folks like Melissa McCormick um, just uh, recently staged an amazing exhibition um, at the Met on Genji and, and had all kinds of things, really amazing things there. So from 
sculpture and statuary to um, you know manga adaptations from Yamato Waki, which is incredible. Uh, so there's a whole range, um, you know, certainly there's card games and, and all these other things as well. Uh, you know, I think that uh, in terms of the appeal of those things, you know, some of those things are really sincere and some of them aren't, you know? So I think that the, um, the, the manga adaptation by, um, you know, so uh, Yamada Waki, I think is very deeply, um, I think, reverential towards the text. There are folks too, I would say, you know, among intellectuals who I think resist see Genji as this exemplar um, or this paragon of, of pre-modern culture, but deeply feudal and, you know, not worldly and apolitical and therefore really resist it because it's been so co-opted in some ways by these folks, you know, previous right-wing folks, you know, current right-wing folks as, as Japanese culture incarnate. One of the things that's really interesting to think about in terms of reception history is that depending on on the decade, Genji might be this, you know, the most amazing thing ever, or people are like, this is, you know, really effeminate and, you know, we're a modern nation now and we're trying to compete with the West and and all these things. And so on the one hand, um, so the deeply homophobic readings of this text because of, of, of um, these cultural norms that, so they want the, the status of Genji Right, this, and to say like we were more civilized than you, when civilization as as a discourse is also very much about, you know, the social Darwinist kind of notion of of who deserves to conquer whom. Genji is really serviceable, right, in that discourse. Right, on the one hand, but not the parts where you know, there's all this homoeroticism and so forth. And so again, like picking and choosing with this text because it is such an accomplishment, I think, is one of the the legacies of it. Like most influential ancient texts, the tale of Genji also has an academic legacy. One of the things that I've been really um, heartened by and really have loved seeing and teaching classes is um, having students do, um, you know, do visual art. So having them make pen scrolls and compete with one another and try to, in a, a very low rent <laughs> you know, deeply inefficient kind of way, kind of try to approximate some of the, the social context and, and, and materials even, you know, of like not letting people erase <laughs> these kinds of things and seeing how that's really seems to have activated the text for, for students and got them to understand and appreciate just craft, showing them some of these like, 12th century hand scrolls and having them really kind of pay attention to these things and, and, you know, to drop, uh, you know, an 1,100-page, you know, translation on a desk and hear the weight of that and then have them write out in their best handwriting just a paragraph and, you know, and not mess up and watch them sweat and to feel that all those other those, those things, I think that's something that we've lost, I think, really, that sense of craft, that sense of um, of devotion to a single thing. And I think that Genji can be a really great vehicle for being able to, if not instill, at least to kind of give a taste of that. Um, I mean, I always tell students, uh, you know, this is um, this is remarkable in some ways because the stakes were so high, but but also because people, again, this was their their lives. And if if you ever care about anything enough to to feel as though a child was stolen, you know, when, when it's taken from you, you know, that's, um, 
I hope that someone can have that, you know, particularly with a, with with some kind of creative endeavor. And so I think that Genji is a way to underscore that to a degree that uh, a lot of other texts I don't think uh, really are able to do. This ability to continually inspire new generations of readers and artists is why Genji remains so influential. It made a whole slew of artists and cultural producers across all kinds of genres and media. It forced them to reckon with um, the very notion of aristocratic culture, you know, in a way that nothing else ever did or could. And that's for both better and for worse, you know, I think that, but that's effectively what it did is that it, it, it gave such a, a deep and fine grained account of all that contingency that you mentioned that, um, you know, there's no way to exhaust it. I mean, like most really great literature that you can go back to and again and again and again, but from so many different facets, like there's no text that I've ever read that's, that's, that does that to that degree. And I think that's what the, what Genji did is that it, it, it gave enough to be specific enough to, to really um, have people delve into all of that, that minutiae on the one hand, but then also spoke to all of these really you know, common themes uh, at the same time. At that moment, there was nothing in the world that was able to do both of those things. And, um, and really sense, arguably, particularly in the context of Japanese kind of literary culture. When Murasaki Shikabu wrote The Tale of Genji, she revealed a darker side of aristocratic culture to the aristocracy. Her unique position as an outsider in Japan's inner circle gave her the perspective to reveal certain truths about Japan's elite. Because of Shikabu's unique perspective and artistic mastery, this text has remained a cornerstone of Japanese literature and culture. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair On Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.